Anyone who's looked at the French civil code, or God forbid, the French tax code, will tell you that it takes more than a mere human mind to decipher its meaning, given how it's been growing and growing ever since it was established by Napoleon hundreds of years ago. Well, Catala is a new project that takes this adage perhaps a bit too literally by applying formal methods, a field increasingly seen as immediately adjacent to cryptography, on the French tax code, Catala aims to provide a domain-specific programming language designed for deriving correct by construction implementations from legislative texts. What that means is that you'll be able to describe the tax code in a programming language and get a proven correct processing of your tax return in that same language too. This episode of Cryptography FM is not directly about cryptography. Instead, we'll be covering a highly related and definitely just as interesting tangent. Can we use the same formal methods that have recently proven the security of cryptographic protocols like Signal and TLS in order to formally verify our tax returns? What does that mean about the rest of the law? And more importantly, can today's guest help me pay less taxes? Joining us today is doctoral student Denis Marigou of INRIA here in Paris to talk about Catala and more. Hello, Denis. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Nadim. Thanks for inviting me. Denis is a PhD student at INRIA Paris, where he is part of the Prosecco team led by Kartikan Pargavan and Bruno Blanchet, specialized in programming languages, study and design. His main research interest is the crafting of domain-specific languages to bring the power of program analysis and proofs to domains such as cryptography, systems engineering, and tax law. Okay, so... Uh, I suppose the first question uh, should be, what even are formal methods, Denis? I hope that's not too general. Formal methods are the will of knowing a system in its entirety and in all its complexity, knowing every little details of a system. This complete knowledge is the way in which you're becoming sure of whenever there's no bugs. Formal methods uh, in this way is opposite to fields like uh, machine learning, because in machine learning, what you're aiming for is getting some result that's precise enough, but you don't care about knowing everything about your system. Also, I guess this would be opposed to things like fuzzing, right? So when you're fuzzing something, you're basically just running a whole bunch of random inputs um, and hoping that it doesn't crash, for example. But with formal methods, you're getting a proof that your algorithm is correct, it's not going to crash, it's not going to produce any insecure output, right? Exactly. I would say formal methods is when you want to know certain things about your system. You know, aren't formal methods generally used for things like protocols? You know, I, I, when I was a PhD student at the same at the same lab, uh, incidentally, as Denis, for, for our viewers, um, I was using them to th to do things like prove uh, the security of um, signal protocol and TLS. Uh, how are these formal methods relevant to things like the tax code? So I define formal methods very broadly, and this is uh, for a very specific reason, which is that it can be applied to a lot of things. 
As you said, it can be applied to cryptography protocols, but it can be applied to any system, actually, any system which can be described using code and using computer science. Uh, for tax law, for law in general, um, you can't really describe law using uh, some kind of formal system or uh, a computer program in the complexity and the generality of the law. However, there are specific sections of the law which talk about uh, quantities that are measurable and uh, decision procedures that are algorithmic. And this is the kind of uh, portions of the law that you can apply formal methods to. And specifically, tax law, which deals about the amount of taxes that you, that you owe to the state, that amount gets computed from uh, what you're earning. And this is where the programs and the algorithm kicks in. And this is where we can study things. So I feel like maybe you're looking at the French tax code and you're trying to formalize it and you're expecting the French tax code to be consistent. And I'm wondering if maybe you're not being overly optimistic um, by, by having that expectation of the French tax code. Uh, have you found it to actually make sense? Uh, what is the expert opinion of uh, the country's leading mathematicians on this subject? So we shouldn't interview the mathematicians to know uh, things about the consistency of the tax code, right? This is, you should interview lawyers actually, because they're the one who've been working on this piece of text for centuries. And they've really looked at it from all different angles, right? So people have the, especially in computer science, have the tendency to look down upon uh, people doing uh, social science or humanities. But what I found very interesting is that lawyers are people are a cast of people that have been studying this system which uh, strives for some form of formalism and they have been doing it for centuries and they have been confronting their theoretical model of reality uh, with a, a number of real situations that is simply astronomical right because this is like all the court cases for centuries so I, I do think that uh, maybe if the tax code is inconsistent, then this is inconsistency is like very subtle. It, this is something that's very difficult to uh, apprehend if you're not like a very specialist of the tax code itself, like a lawyer. So I see that uh, you have collaborated with a lawyer, I believe, called Sarah Lowski. Um, on understanding the tax code. Um, what can you tell us about what you've learned from that collaboration and how did you start attempting to apply formal methods to the tax code? What was the first step? Uh, and then later we can discuss how that uh, transformed into the methodology that Catala uses in order to capture um, tax codes and other uh, legal uh, abstractions. Indeed, indeed. And... Uh so the start point of this journey into tax law, because uh, I don't have any con prior connections to tax law, right? I'm just like a computer science student. I would want it to apply formal methods outside of the traditional domains where it uh, has been applied in the past decades. And Sarah Lowski had actually given a talk at Popol in 2018. And her talk uh, inspired me to look more precisely about what I could do. Uh, so the first thing I, I was looking to do is, you have this very comp 
complex French social field pistol system. Uh, if you're working, if you have some earnings, or if you're not working, you have the rise to social benefits, but you also have to pay taxes. So the income you get in your pockets after all of these provisions is very different from the income you have before this redistribution phase. And one question I had is the question of the marginal tax rates, meaning that if you earn a raise in salary one year after the previous year, let's say you earn like a 10 euros raise, then your taxes are going to increase because uh, if you earn more money, then you pay more taxes. But your social benefits are also going to decrease because the more money you earn, the less social benefits you have the right to. And my question was, is there some situations where if you get a raise, this raise is completely consumed by the raising of the taxes and the decrease of social benefits? And this was like my starting question, because behind like this game of numbers, there are like real situations of people that actually struggle because these laws, these social benefits, these tax laws, they're not designed together. They're designed separately. And their interaction can bring situations that are very bad for people and that suffer from like a decrease in revenue rights. And this is where I started to actually do a little Python model of the French social fiscal system to find out if there was there were such uh, situations. Okay. So when you have the Catala use case, is it the case that the I guess what I'm wondering is whether it is kind of a server-side or a client-side use case per se. Am I running Catala as the state in order to encode my tax laws, in order to ensure a correct application of these laws on everyone who submits their tax returns? Or am I using Catala as a citizen in order to calculate my tax returns? This is an interesting question. So we are using the umbrella term Catala here to design like the project in itself. But if we get down to the specifics uh, technically, then we actually have those two components. First, the government and the server should compute the taxes in a way that's guaranteed correct to what the law says. But you also want the citizen to be able to check that what the government computed is actually the correct amount. And this is why uh, programs that are derived from the law should be open source and should be accessible both to the citizen and as well as used by the government to actually run their administrative uh, programs. So let's talk more about the strategies in which uh, Catala uh, obtains uh, formal guarantees on um, tax code or tax laws. Um, I know that in formal verification, you have a lot of different things that you can do. So. There, for example, things like Proverif and um, Tamarin, which I am personally most familiar with, will do a symbolic analysis uh, of, of, of a system of, of exchanges of messages on a network, which is totally not what this is about. But then you have more general uh, formal verification uh, tools like SMT solvers um, and, uh, for example, the Koch Theorem Assistant. Where does your um, stack of uh, formal verification fit in? What kind of strategies are you applying uh, in this particular use case? So the strategies we'll be using will be determined by the kind of property that you want to prove on the law itself. 
and uh, different strategies have to be used for different properties, right? So one property you would want to prove about the law is whether the law is consistent with itself. For instance, the French tax law is structured as follows. You have the law that says the amount of family benefits that the household should receive should decrease with the should increase with the number of children he has. And then you have a decree that says the formulae for the amount of family benefits is a certain amount X multiplied by the number of children, right? And so you have this property that the law is a meta property about the formulae that's de described in the decree. So here you would want to check whether the, the, the formulae in the decree satisfy the meta property of the law. And this is something you can do either with an SMT solver or in, uh, using abstract interpretation or using direct manual, for instance, cock proof. Catala is designed to be higher in the stack, meaning that it is something that will generate these proof obligations and it will be up to you to kind of plug the right tool in order to prove what you want to prove. So I noticed that on the Catala website, you describe it as a correct by construction. You know, you say Catala is a domain-specific programming language, and we know what that means, uh, designed for deriving correct by construction implementations from legislative texts. So what does that mean? What does correct by construction mean? So here we've been discussing what you want to prove once you have a formalization in the law of the law. But the problem is that we don't currently have a formalization of the law because when, when governments are using programs to compute taxes, for instance, the programs are just written in the haddock way, right? There is no, there is nothing that can guarantee a direct connection between the program that runs and the law that specifies what the program should do. And Catala, unlike traditional programming languages, allow, allow you to annotate the text of the law itself with little snippets of code that translate the meaning of the text into a, formula, a formalized language. And if you use a traditional mainstream programming language, you can't do that, actually. You can't annotate line by line. Because traditional languages, they have a structure that goes from exceptions to base case. You write, if exception one, else exception two, else exception three. And then at the end, the base case. But the law, the drafting style of the law is completely different. It says the base case is that thing. Oh, but if you're in that that exception, then do that. Oh, but there's another exception, et cetera, et cetera. And that difference in logical structure forbids you to use a literate programming style when you annotate the law with the program. And that's why I had to invent basically a new programming language. Because, of course, even though I like programming languages, uh, if I can use an existing tool, I would rather use it than create another thing. That, but uh, I had to do that for this reason. Yeah, I noticed actually that the programming language for Catala is surprisingly pleasantly easy to read. I feel like I'm almost, almost reading English. And this is actually something that I've always really prized in languages uh, modeling languages, programming languages. Um, I'm sure you're familiar, for example, with Verifpal. I really prioritized that a lot, um, mostly as a uh, reaction to the incredible 
um, unreadability of a lot of other languages in the field. But here we also see the same thing. You know, uh, you seem to be, uh, as an example on your website, defining section 132, the qualified employee discount, um, which appears to be part of the U.S. tax code, actually. And um, it's just basically like scope, qualified employee discount, definition, under condition discount type. And I'm just reading code directly here. Under condition discount type with pattern property consequence equals if employee discount is greater than the customer price multiplied by gross profit percentage, then customer price multiplied by gross profit percentage. Otherwise, you get the employee discount. Um, so when you were defining this, um, could you tell us about the considerations that you uh, had in mind, um, you know, you, you just discussed that you wanted it to reflect how legal text is described. Is there anything else that you focused on, especially when engineering the compiler or uh, thinking about how people would want to annotate the law with, with a language? So this is a very interesting question in terms of the design process, right? So I knew I was going to uh, create a new domain-specific language, DSL. And the first questions when you're doing such a thing is to ask who is going to read the code and who is going to write the code that you're going to create. So I knew who was going to write the code, right? It's developers. And developers, they can, they can learn a DSL. That's fine. They're computer scientists. But the most, more important question was who was going to read the code? And this is where Catala differs from traditional DSLs, which are, uh, which whose destination is only computer scientists. Because I adopted a style where the law could be annotated line by line by the code, I wanted lawyers to be able to read the annotations and say, oh, I have read the annotations, I have understood them, I can guarantee that they say what the law says and no more than what the law says. So this was a design requirement. I have I had to, to have this language readable by lawyers. And I didn't mean writable by lawyers because I don't think you can just give a lawyer the task of implementing a massive system because you need to reason like a computer scientist to actually structure the code and design the good data structures and stuff. But for the specific use case of lawyers being able to read the code, I had to pick a syntax which was close to English. But actually, I have different syntaxes. I have a French syntax. I have an English syntax. So Catala adapts to uh, the natural language that you're using and the language in which the law is written so that the lawyer from a particular country can understand the code and check that it's correct. And this is how we get the correct by construction, by having lawyers review the code. And this is a huge improvement compared to uh, the traditional methods because there was some kind of a lawyer review with current systems like for implementing the law, but the review was only based on test cases. Basically, the lawyer would, would create a test case like, a, oh, let's say that this household is uh, earning uh, that much per year, etc. Then I compute manually the tax according to the law and it gives that number. Then the lawyer gives the test to the computer scientist and the computer scientist just have to do whatever they, they have to do so that the system is complies with, uh, the, in, with this test case. Catala is an improvement because it moves the conversation about correctness from the test cases to the code itself. 
And in that way, it allows you to being much more systematic. And how have uh, lawyers reacted to this? Have you been able to get Catala really picked up by um, legal scholars or people working um, in the field? How do you see lawyers actually adapting to this? Do you, are you going to have like a lawyer IDE where they can just like load up a PDF of the law and annotate it live using Catala? That sounds that sounds like it could be pretty interesting. This could be an angle indeed. Uh, since the beginning of the design process, I uh, had tried to have Catala programs looked by lawyers. So my primary contact was Sarah Lowski, but she was too much of an insider, right? She has she had already formalized using logic too much parts of the law. So this was a biased opinion. So I, I, I contacted some uh, French PhD students whose PhD topic is actually the... Um, automatic legal decisions. So she was studying the legal value of a decision that was made automatically. And she was actually looking for some way for automatic decisions to be justified upon the law. And then she looked at Catala. And then she had no prior knowledge of computer science, but she actually helped me to pick the syntax, to pick the keywords so that it's understandable by, let's say, a standard law bachelor or low master student right so aside from this uh, expert case are you i guess you're focusing now on developing the essential stack and the uh, verifying the theory and uh, trying to uh, perfect your use case before you move into um, having an ide or having like a sort of way to bring on board lawyers but you do see that as being an integral part of catala in the less than more than near future i guess Yes. So first I had to, as you said, uh, figure out what the semantics of the this DSL was. And this was the topic of a master internship that happened uh, in spring 2020. So now we have basically figured out what was the formalization and semantics of the language. We have uh, implementation of a compiler that's written in OCaml. So OCaml was the default language to write a compiler in because it's concise. It allows you to have an implementation that follows closely what you're saying the semantics. But I, even though the semantics and formalization is a very important piece, I also agree with the kind of design choices that Verifpal is using, which is to have a focus on the user experience of, uh, of using the language. That's why I spent quite some time actually uh, for on, like very silly things like having good error messages for syntax errors, right? And I'm, by the way, using the wonderful paper by uh, Francois Potier and the Manier extension uh, to do that. So this is like some great stuff if you want to have a good error messages for your OCaml-based uh, compiler. Much harder to accomplish than you might think, right? Yes, indeed. And uh, that's why we need a, a research paper to write a good system uh, for that. Uh, but this is definitely the kind of small things that uh, I'll be spending quite some time on to make sure that the development experience is okay. So for now, we just have a uh, command line interface, which is good for computer scientists, but very bad for lawyers. Of course, for lawyers, we would want to look at other mediums like uh, some web-based uh, code editor or an IDE 
But like you could have basically like a, OCR, heavy you know, uh, so which is basically I'm a technology that can convert a PDF text to text text and then have that, uh, use that in order to like look at legal PDFs, convert them to French or whatever American English texts. And then you could have a web ID that shows you that on the, on the right. And then on the left, you can sort of annotate that text and inject that into a new PDF that then you can have those PDF files that when read by a human show you the human text but you can also load that PDF into the Catala compiler and it like reads the secret magical Catala text inside and then understands it. it, it uh, exactly. You way. can imagine uh, all sorts of systems and using the latest technologies. However, uh, one thing that uh, I'm really concerned in that I don't see in a lot of tooling that's being developed around what is called rules as code because Catala is obviously a part of that that movement. Is you really have to separate the presentation parts, like the like a fancy web-based interface, the interface part, with the core computation language semantics parts. If you separate the two, then you can have a very good interface and a very good compiler, right? But if you mix the two together, then you're going to run into issues, right? Because you can't. You, you have to separate the problems in order to treat them separately. So where do you see Catala going, let's say, in one year? And then we'll talk about 20 years. But let's say, what is the most interesting application that you think Catala can accomplish by 2021 or 2022? So when I started to create the compiler, I obviously needed some kind of test suite, right? And I've chosen to start implementing the French family benefits, because this is not tax law per se, but it's very related. It computes uh, an amount Have of social Have you considered benefits. looking at uh, a use case I think is extremely urgent, which is um, small tech businesses in France, specifically those specializing in cryptography. I really think that <laughs> this, is, this is something that you need to move to the top of your list. Uh, unfortunately, um, Nadim, uh, uh, tax for companies are really, really, really complicated. And I, I wanted to start with something simple. Really? Yes. Really? Are, is, is that right? Is that right? Oh, okay. Thank you so much for letting me know. And, um, and, and family benefits are basically the simplest benefits in terms of uh, computation that you can think of. So that's why I, I wanted to start with that. However, even though it's very simple, it's it, there would be a huge benefit in using it to uh, maybe replace or improve the existing online simulators for family benefits. Uh, the one maintained by the CAF, which is the government agency. They look, they look like they've been made in 1995. You know, they're yes. still using this old HTML stuff. And it's like a dot, uh, it's like not even dot PHP, it's like a. Uh, active macromedia uh, called fusion or something like that. Some some ancient. Yes, uh, uh, unfortunately, government agencies have to deal with a lot of legacy code and a lack of resources to update. So, if I can help on that, maybe uh, it, it's for the better. Um, but, for instance, I discovered several bugs on the family benefits CAF simulator, which I of course disclosed to the the CAF. Uh, computer science departments. But uh, I do think it's very important to have something that's correct and ready to use and simple to use. So in terms of interface, uh, I'm not a UX designer, so but uh, there are very good people over at uh, 
direction du numérique, which has made a very good website called uh, mezet.gouv.fr that, that's then been renamed. But uh, there's the interface part, which lets people connect instantly to the amount of social benefits that they have to, they have the right to access, right? Because there's a there's a huge amount of people that have the right to social benefits that, that don't get them because of a lack of information, because of a lack of uh, okay. of knowledge so, about so, the system. So here's a critical so, question for you that I just that I just came up with. So people usually look at formal methods when they want to make. Uh, when they want to study something that's very complicated. So we look at formal methods when we want to talk about um, not just cryptographic protocols, which is definitely the example I'm most familiar with, but I'm also aware, for example, that formal methods have been used in order to verify the correctness of the program that runs the Line 14 train here in the metro, which is fully automated in Paris. Um, I, I know that that, that has yes. been analyzed using formal methods. Uh, I think I think it was Bruno who did that, but I'm not sure. Um, and uh, my, my critical question is, you know, when the law for something as common as taxes, this kind of common law becomes so complicated that we need to go look at formal methods to make something as, as you know, widespread as tax law, understandable and parsable and, and correctly implementable by people all around the country, you know, shouldn't it, shouldn't we be focusing on making the law simpler instead of, you know, going for these highly sophisticated techniques to understand the law in the first place? This is a traditional argument and it has a lot of common sense to it. And there has been a lot of propositions for fiscal simplification. The most notable being the Piketty, Landais and Saez proposition in 2011, also focusing on more redistribution. However, if you think about the production process of the law, it's not something that you design once and for all, and that's very simple. No, it's a lot of special cases that are stacked on top of each other and that are accumulated over decades of legislative processes and a lot of political compromises and the results of uh, democratic compromises. And this is not something that's compatible with being simple, actually. It just adds complexity. Well, there's to but even even if but even if you wanted to simplify it, then you would want to reform the fiscal system. But then when there's a reform, you would want to know who is going to win and who is going to lose with the reform, right? And for that, you need to know very precisely how the old system is working in order to produce a simulator. This is something that was happening with the latest pension reform in France. The government was not able to produce a working simulator. And that created a lot of uncertainty, which hindered the ability of people to know how they were going to be affected by the reform. So in theory, I agree with that we need fiscal simplification, but even if we have fiscal simplification, we need to be able to tame the complexity of the current system. And which is why Catala might be the tool to help with that. So the old saying goes that democracy is messy, right? This is something that we've heard over and over again, but if our laws, if we have no choice but to have our laws be as messy as our democracy, then aren't we moving in a situation, you know, if you look at Kadala 20 years ahead, and I do want to ask you about the positive aspects, but 
Imagine we're in a world where the law is so complicated that you have to rely on theorem provers to understand it properly. Aren't you moving the, uh, the capacity to, to understand the law and to thereby uh, participate in the uh, democratic process to a large degree, you know, being an active citizen, understanding uh, the laws of the republic and so on. Aren't you relegating that capacity to the hands of the few who are capable of actually understanding these formal method systems and making it more distant from the majority of the population who maybe doesn't have the time or the advanced education necessary in order to go through 300 pages to um, obtain the question to, uh, regarding some right or some legal responsibility that they have? It's a very good remark, and I think it's uh, very valid. I have two answers to that. The first is uh, the famous uh, Bourdieu saying that uh, when, whenever we move into a more advanced societies, the forms of domination become more rationalized. And the uh, progressing complexity of the law is uh, a manifestation of that rationalization of the form of domination. However, if you look at what political parties are actually proposing, if you want to create a law that is less complex, then it means that you need some kind of principles that are uh, smaller and that apply equally to, to everyone. And the, the problem is that in a democracy, as, a, as we were saying before, these opposi opposing political parties have different guiding principles and they confront to each other and then the compromise is met, which is then translated into, oh, okay, but in this situation, this guiding principle applies, but not too much because in this other situation. And I think that the complexity of the law is something that's fundamental to opposing principles, right? But so I'm not very optimistic concerning the simplification of the law. I don't want either that we need to rely on theorem provers to actually understand the law. However, people are represented in court by lawyers for centuries and have been for centuries, and that for a good reason, which is that, and this is something also that has come from my interactions with lawyers, is that there's a good reason why you need professional law people to guide you through the process of uh, interacting with the law, which is that the law is complicated because reality is complicated. And if we create a more advanced society, then we have to deal with that complexity in some sort of another. Fair enough. Okay. So in 20 years, if all goes really well, how far do you see Catala potentially having an impact on all kinds of legislation? Will it be mostly focused on taxation? which has largely been the scope of this discussion, or do you see other applications like perhaps business law or property law perhaps? I know, for example, that in Dubai, they're currently looking at using smart contracts in order for the government to actually enact the um, bylaws of corporations established there. So you establish a new company and your corporate bylaws, the I don't know rules regarding board meetings and so on, are actually enacted in a smart contract. Uh, and that could include the shares So, um, uh, of, of who owns how much in the company. So in the case of Catala, do you see this going beyond taxes? Or how much of taxes do you see being captured by Catala in the very far future, you know, a decade, two decades ahead? 
So there are technical and organizational challenges for Catala if you want to expand it beyond taxes. The technical challenges is that for tax law, this is only basically arithmetic, right? But if you want to reason about uh, organization laws or something more complex, then you need like modal, modal logic or deontic logic. And you need more powerful constraint solver, especially if you deal with like uh, multiple objects that had, can have like hundreds of uh, relationships between them. So there is the, this technical challenge that will, will have to be dealt with. The, the other is the organizational challenge, because if you want people to use formal methods to check the law, then you, you have, if you're in a private setting, then the two parties have to agree on using the same tool. And if the parties don't agree on using the formal methods, then you're not going to use the formal methods. And this is why I think uh, is going to slow down the adoption of things like uh, smart contracts in like day-to-day uh, -day interactions between private companies. However, if this formal methods comes from a regulatory body like the state, and if the state imposes the use of these tools to basically every everybody that's living in the territory of the state, then we'll see some massive adoption. So I do think that the use of this tool will like is likely to come from the state promoting the use of these technologies rather from a, a, a grassroots adoptions by uh, private uh, uh, sectors. However, even though uh, maybe business law or private contracts could be an extension to Catala, in the domain of tax law, there's a huge space for improvements. I want to tell you the story of uh, this uh, uh, employee of uh, Pôle Emploi, which is the unemployment agency in France. His name was uh, Yann Godin. So Yann Godin uh, was struggling with the computer system of uh, Pôle Emploi because the computer system of Pôle Emploi was telling some unemployed people that they didn't have the right to social benefits, which is uh, allocation de fin de droit. But when Yann Godin was looking at the legislative text, he saw that these people had the right to it. And so he fought for them. He told them, oh, but you have to write a letter with a recommendé and accusé de reception and uh, send them to the agency and then you'll get your thing. But then what happened is that the management of Yann Godin noticed that he was doing that and that he was helping so much people that he couldn't fulfill his uh, duties as a normal uh, Pôle emploi employee. Unfortunately, Pôle emploi management decided to uh, fire uh, Yann Godin. And this is very unfortunate because the knowledge that Yann Godin had accumulated could have, be, have been used to improve the computer system to give people the benefits they had the right to. But instead, the decision was to keep the uh, interactions between the people that are supposed to uh, code the algorithm and the people that are using it very separate. And the lack of interactions between those two sides is halting the improvement of the system and creating a lot of frustration and anger. And frankly, if, if you have the right to uh, um, a benefit and the computer system denies it, it's, it's very dystopic, right? We don't want to live in a world like, like that. So if the system had been designed with Catala, then uh, 
because Catala is correct by construction from le legislative text, uh, we hope that uh, such an issue could have been prevented. But even though you apply the ideal technical solution, we always want cooperation between the people who are using the system and people who are designing it. So that's why it's, it's important that we have open source uh, codes for all Indeed. these kind of systems. That's uh, a very compelling uh, story. And uh, I think it really underlines uh, something that uh, I know you and I have discussed before, maybe if it wasn't uh, mentioned in this interview, uh, you've said many times that computer scientists need to stop looking down on the humanities, on the law. You know, we're not so much above or so much not needing these people, given that we work in pure math all the time. And it's a common sort of like arrogant thing to do. And I really appreciate how Catala is bridging the gap between these different disciplines and making it clear that we all need to work together in order to obtain actionable results that actionably actually make things life better for people and improve the state of our democracy and the state of our just the quality of life generally. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Denis Marigou, a researcher at uh, INRIA Paris in the Prosecco team working on Catala. Uh, so you can find Catala at catala-lang. So that's C-A-T-A-L-A-C-A-T-A-L-A-Lang.org. Uh, and I'll have that link below. Uh, Denis, any final words before we close off? I wanted to thank you for uh, hosting that topic, which is uh, not directly in the heart of uh, your audience, which is uh, cryptographers. But I, I, if it can uh, foster people to look outside of their like their narrowly defined uh, area of interest, and uh, maybe there, I think there are a lot of projects and uh, things to improve like that by bridging different. Disciplines well, I mean, bridging I did people. my PhD on formal methods as well, and I definitely use that in cryptography. I think that so long as we're talking about you know correctness as it applies to um, systems that are really critical to us, we're still talking about things that can interest people who are curious in something like cryptography. And like you said, uh, I think it's really important to also look at how things like this can uh, broaden. Our, um, our understanding of uh, how this sort of logic and this sort of technology can be useful. All right, that's it for this episode of Cryptography FM. But maybe when you tune in next week, it'll actually be you who's being interviewed. Are you working on maybe uh, hacking a car, uh, breaking the decisional Diffie-Hellman assumption? You never know. A new post-quantum signature scheme, or maybe you uh, finally got the specs for some protocol that no one's been able to look at before and found that it's horribly broken. Come have a conversation about it. I want you on this show. That's what this show is all about. It's a way to allow people to discuss their work, give a new medium and a new platform for interesting, insightful and valuable discussions with penetrative and difficult questions, or at least I hope so, I try my best. So whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM. And thanks a lot for listening.